early because I know there's going to be a lot of questions here. Trevor only covered potatoes. There's, there's more to agriculture than potatoes. Um, just a few thank yous. Uh, great place, great place catering. Thank you for providing lunch. Uh, University of Latvich for supporting SACPA big time. And uh, also to Shaw TV, of course, and, uh, and other media. We, we really, uh, we reach basically thousands of people every week, even though there's, we only uh, 70, 80, 90 people come to the sessions, but we, we reach a large, large, large audience. So I think that's uh, to be expected nowadays. You can't have, uh, can't expect to have everybody show up at, at meetings. I also like to mention that uh, SACPA has a lot of volunteers and uh, some of them work hard to help out at today's session. So a big hand to Penny and, and her crew that uh, help out. We also entertain membership. Annalise will gladly take your money. It's uh, $25 a year, uh, $5 for students. Uh, it gives you a few privileges. Uh, one of them is uh, free lunch at our ATM. Uh, so it basically only costs you, uh, you know, $11 to be a member if you take advantage of that. Um, I think we're ready for questions. Uh, please keep your comments brief and uh, your questions as well. And uh, Trevor, that goes for you as well, your, <laughs> your answers. <laughs> but uh, it's like, it's, I'm sure there will be a lot of questions uh, related to other aspects of agriculture, so you don't have to ask questions strictly on potatoes. So you can absolutely. <laughs> um, so yeah, without further ado, go ahead. Hi, Trevor. Hi, Maria, how are you? I'm good. Um, first of all, thank you for a fantastic uh, presentation. Uh, so my question is a little bit about potatoes. Potatoes are a rotation crop. Uh, could you talk a little bit about um, the rotation that happens with the crops and also the research that's done to determine the best way to rotate those crops? Yeah, great question. Thanks for that, Maria. I, I think. Alberta is recognized for having longer rotations than some other parts of our country, for example. There are areas of the Maritimes where potato crops in particular are only rotated every two, sometimes three years. And in Alberta, most of our growers, it's at least four years in rotation. So that longer cycle, of course, allows for better soil regeneration, better nitrogen fixation, disease management, all those kinds of things. You know, increasingly growers are looking to some specialty crops. So, I mean, I talked about the opportunity in plant proteins. You know, 
Yellow peas, for example, put more into the soil than they take out, so they would make an ideal. They also are a dry land sort of irrigate. They don't require as much irrigation or any, depending on the, the circumstances. So that's the opportunity for us is, you know, we've added all of these acres, uh, particularly to support the potato production in the region. Making sure we've got the right rotation in place, making sure we've got the right crops is certainly part of it. You know, the Lethbridge Research and Development Center is doing work there. The college and the university are doing work there. Farming Smarter is doing work there. Private sector folks like Cortiva that are here are, you know, are, doing, are doing all of that work. So there's, the good news is there's enormous capacity in our region to address those challenges, and we've got all the right experts doing that work today. So thanks. Was that brief enough? My name is Klaus Jurico. Uh, Trevor, uh, you reviewed the technology and the amazing dependence of agriculture for this region, uh, for the country. Yep. And the technology just blows me away and the extent of achievements in that regard. Um, but it also creates a sense of fear in me. And I'll tell you why. Uh, I think it was 86 or 87, I went to a SACPA session and the government f chief of local irrigation or something like this, uh, he gave a talk and he showed us the reservoirs mm. and they were empty. Now the dependence of water to everything you described, including production and then processing is unbelievable. And half the water that comes off the mountains, by law, has to go to Saskatchewan. So I find the dependence on water is so huge now, especially as industry, everything grows, everything grows. I use more water and so on. But anyway, that's the, that's, that's the worry I have. No, thank you for that. I, I would absolutely agree. Uh, we have a number of people, particularly at the university, Dr. David Hill is here, who's chaired for a long time the Water Policy Committee of the Pacific Northwest Economic Region. Um, so water, I think water security and dealing with water security is going to be probably the single biggest issue for our agricultural community to come in the next two decades. There's no question. It's my biggest concern. There is a working group looking at additional infrastructure in the irrigation system around additional storage, additional ways to store water between seasons. The challenge, of course, is that infrastructure is really expensive and no one wants it anywhere near them. So they're very, it's very unpopular to build dams and big reservoirs and things like that. So I totally agree. Water scarcity is probably one of the most important issues to face our whole region, for sure. Thanks for the comment. Hi there. Yeah, Terry Shillington. Um, the recent NAFTA negotiations, I don't think, have been enacted in law yet, but right. we have to assume they will be. Would you care to comment? Uh, would you care to comment on how agriculture in general and this area in particular would seem to be affected by the by NAFTA Chapter Two? Yeah. So the AFTA NAFTA agreement. Uh, USMCA has not been ratified uh, by Canada or the United States, so only Mexico so far has ratified that agreement, so it is not in force and effect. And it, I guess the biggest concern or challenge I have with you know, NAFTA 2.0 is the fact that it creates uncertainty. You know, as I mentioned, I have an investor that wants to build an agri-food plant here. It would create an 
you know, several hundreds of jobs. It would add lots of value to our community. But there's no way they're going to make that decision until they know for sure, first of all, will the laws be enacted? And then will they be enforced and protected? So I think one of the biggest challenges we have is, is that uncertainty. The U.S. is for sure our largest single trading partner. In Alberta, about 85% of our exports, the bulk of it oil and gas, admittedly, but the bulk of our exports, almost you know, 85% go to the U.S. So when people talk about diversifying our trade partners, we absolutely need to build partnerships with Europe. We absolutely need to do more with Asia. But geography and gravity is what it is, and so the U.S. will continue to be an important part of the trade equation for us. So the opportunity for growers and producers is to make sure they're well represented by their associations. You know, what we're seeing now is we're no longer relying on government for these conversations. You know, the, the beef producers, the canola growers, they're having bilateral conversations with their counterparts in the U.S. And I think that's, that's really the next level of conversation is, you know, moving around governments and the politics of government and really trying to figure out how we solve problems with, with our counterparts. So that, that's another huge area of opportunity. But trade for Alberta, trade for our region is key to our long-term success. That's the opportunity for sure. I hope that answers your question. Hi, Trevor. Trevor Page. Uh, my question deals with climate change and the adequacy of water for agriculture. You've mentioned already scarcity. But you also mentioned during your talk that the demand for food globally will grow. In fact, the predictions are that 50% more food will need to be produced by 2050. Right. Yes, infrastructure is expensive, but although we can look forward to a warmer climate, a longer growing season, will we have enough water to be able to grow uh, to our, our potential? Now, what is the process? How do we get, yes, it's expensive, but how do we get it going? You have demonstrated how important agriculture is to the economy of Lethbridge. I mean, who takes the move on this one? What's the planning process? How do we get, how do we assure that by 2050 we'll have enough water for our crops? I have absolutely no idea. No, I'm kidding. Uh, that, that's well, a very... Well, you look after economic development in Lethbridge, so it's no good just giving us a picture of how it is today. Yeah. Our kids are going to live for the next 50 years. Yep. No, I do, I, I'm, not, I'm just, just kidding. The, the, there, there's a, a lot of complexity, as you well know, right? So water is one of those things that's governed by international agreements like NAFTA or hopefully USMCA. Water is an interjurisdictional issue. I mean, there's the Watershed Council here. It affects all of southern Alberta. You've got municipal boundaries, interprovincial boundaries. How it gets started, it's already started. So there are interprovincial working groups between Alberta and Saskatchewan talking about water storage, water infrastructure. You have the Watershed Councils that are actively working on not only promoting conservation, but also working on models and predictive information the University of Lethbridge, the, the geography department, does an amazing job of providing some great models that governments are taking heed of. So, I mean, for this audience, how you can be involved directly is to advocate with your elected officials, make sure that they know water is of concern to you. When groups like the Watershed Council are doing events or actively working on policy, make sure that you know, growers and grower associations are directly involved. So advocacy, I think, is also how it gets started. 
making sure people know that it's a priority. Groups like mine, we work with our regional partners. You know, the South Grow Regional Initiative is a collection of 26 communities, including the city of Lethbridge. And South Grow is actively working on a, a policy advisory group for the provincial government around water specifically. So a lot of those discussions are happening. Um, and I think it's just important that we continue to elevate the importance of it. We continue to make sure it's visible. Uh, and we continue to sort of identify where we can make that progress. The city of Lethbridge, for example, has enough water license in theory to double in size. So legally it has the license to do so, but can you imagine taking two times more water out of the old man? Probably not a good thing. So it also then lends to the fact that how do we get, get more efficiency in industry? Things like variable rate irrigation, the research and investments that are happening there, because we can use far less water than we do today for many of the applications that we use it for. You know, I, I speak back to my processing past, you know, from when I started with the company to when I left, in and, a, in and about a decade, we reduced our water consumption by 40% through technology and practice and those kinds of things. So it can be done. The challenge then is, you know, the plant is a relatively small user of water compared to an irrigation pivot or the crops that are being used by the plant. So we have to push that thought process and that research and some of those technologies further back along the process. So it's the future, it's infrastructure, it's policy, but it's also what can we do right now to conserve water. It would seem that we need some longer term planning. Agreed. Hi, my name is Peter Beal. Hi there. And you talked mostly about plant-based agriculture. I mean, Southern Alberta still is pretty big in pork, beef, you bet. And that sort of thing. And uh, I mean, like one of the things climate change that Trevor mentioned, uh, like Austra I forget whether it's Australia and New Zealand was talking about adding seaweed to reduce methane and animal uh, waste <coughs> and things like that. Uh, what's being, do you know what's being done here, you know, to, for beef? I mean, some of us would rather go to war than give up our steaks. You know, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for the question. It's a great point. So. Our region actually hosts and produces about 60% of Canada's beef production. So in terms of the amount of cattle in that sort of feedlot alley, as it's sometimes called, 60% of Canada's beef industry is in our region. So it is hugely important. And then, of course, you can add poultry and all of the other ones to that. So, uh, you know, what's being done, I think you've, you're seeing industry associations adjust their, their approach. They understand that, you know, changing their practices is an, is an important thing. You know, we're working to grow both beef production as well as plant protein. I used potatoes because it's an example I'm familiar with. I also worked, you know, as a part of the PepsiCo family with sunflower seeds at the Spitz plant. I could bore you for hours about sunflower seeds, but potatoes seem like something we could talk about. But you're absolutely right. Um, the animal side is just as important and, and adds in the same ways that all of the agricultural. The same technologies we're seeing in the field there's a similar kind of automation for protecting animals, harvesting animals, all of those kinds of things along the way. So the same technologies are being seen there as well. The opportunity for us in Canada is both in plant, we were talking about this at lunch, is both in animal and plant. So domestically in North America, consumers are driving this trend, right? So consumers are demanding alternatives to meats. It's not about the industry or government. It's people actually wanting to have different options. But as much as the North American diet is changing, the developing world is saying, we actually want to be more like you were. So we're seeing more demand for meat externally in other international markets. 
So, you know, Trevor's opinion is that you'll see a shift from, you know, our animal proteins will shift to more external or export markets. You know, the maple leaf plant that's here in town, a lot of pork production there, almost exclusively that volume goes to Japan. It's actually not for the domestic consumption in Canada. So I think we'll continue to see that trend accelerate, again, until consumer preferences shift. Hi, I'm Ken Sears. Um, first off, I'd just like to, one fast comment. Most of the production plants in southern Alberta, particularly potatoes and other foods, are unionized. That means they're much more stable jobs. And that's, so that's just a, just a comment. But I want you to put on your mayor's hat for a second. Okay. Because for the last five, six years, I've been to probably two-thirds of the municipal conventions across the prairies for other reasons. And constantly, I will talk to mayors, I'll talk to uh, CFOs, I'll talk to um, councillors about how their towns are doing. And unless they're in those rings around the major urban centres, they're in trouble. Yep. They're losing uh, population steadily and consistently. And a lot of that population is in the counties and a lot of that population is farm families. We're seeing consolidation as far as land ownership goes, sure. but we're also seeing a hollowing out of the countryside and of the small towns. And personally, I think that's a very dangerous thing for a whole number of reasons I won't go into. So if you want to comment on that, I'd appreciate it. It's definitely a global trend. So the urbanization of population, the move to cities is something that we see not just in Western Canada, but all around the world. You know, I, I'll use the example I'm familiar with. So I live in the village of Sterling, beautiful community of 1,269 souls as of the last census, right? So 1,300 people, but we're about 20 minutes from the city. So you could live in Sterling and have a day job in Lethbridge like me. It's somewhat convenient. You can do most of your shopping. You're, so it's, it's not really a rural community because it's close enough. It's inside that ring, as you mentioned. We're fortunate enough to have high-speed internet. We have fiber optic to our homes, as an example. I have a better internet connection in Sterling than I do in my office here in Lethbridge. So I can work remotely from home easier than I can work in the office. So it's convenient. Milk River is another 20, 25 minutes down the road. And the story is a little bit different. Another beautiful community, lots of committed people, but their population has gone the other way. They're starting to see that decline that you talk about. And the difference is really 20, 25 minutes. So people, you know, in general, are moving to cities for the perceived convenience, services, but it's, it's a global trend. I don't know how we stop that, because that, that, you know, people are wanting the convenience of city life, people don't want to commute. Uh, but part of it is educating people about the opportunities. I think broadband access, you know, so my strategy in Sterling is if I can keep engineers, graphic designers, and people that might not otherwise live in my community there because they can work from home, that benefits the community. And those technologies can also be used to support the agricultural community around us and we can build additional support. So it's, gonna, it's, it's multifaceted. I mean, that's a hugely complex issue, but it's, there's no question we're seeing that here now. And as the city of Lethbridge continues to grow and there's more convenience, I'll use that in air quotes, uh, you know, what's the impact on the communities around us? We also talked at the table at lunch a little bit about this idea of, you know, once land is consumed by development, it's gone forever, right? And we see this urban sprawl, you know, the city of Calgary is the perfect example. Land in Canada is relatively cheap compared to other parts of the world. So rather than build up, we tend to build out. 
So it does require government policy and considerations of things like uh, densification. So the city of Lethbridge has a new municipal development plan that's in the works. And one of the things that's specifically in that policy is how we need to infill before we, before we create new subdivisions, right? So that's very much a part of you know, municipal strategy. Uh, but we, you know, again, it's a global trend. It's something that's gonna take a lot of different people involved in. Hi there. Uh, Stan Knowlton. Oh, since uh, about 12,000 years ago, the uh, glaciers melted, the prairie flourished, buffalo roamed, and in the past 100 years, we've been mining the soil. Uh, do we have any indication as to how far we've reversed the process and what the, uh, if there's any measurements that are being taken to find out what our impact is uh, on the soils. Um, yeah, there's, it's interesting, uh, Dr. Newton Luapai is at the research station and he works specifically on soil health and soil ecosystems. He was on my board, that's why I'm a little bit familiar with his work. Um, there are all kinds of measurements being taken all of the time, not just by growers and associations, but by government and by researchers. I would say there are areas of the province that have seen a deterioration. No question that we've stripped minerals and we've stripped things out. There are, however, a number of areas where we've seen more positive balance in soils, where net-net, they're actually in better shape now than they were, say, 10 years ago. You know, if an I, th I think about uh, most of my sunflower growers, as an example, were in and around the Portage La Prairie area. There was a concerted effort by that group to change their practices, to move away from certain chemicals in an attempt to balance that. So yes, there's research being done. I'm not intimately familiar with it. I don't pretend to be a scientist by any stretch of the imagination. Thankfully, there's people way smarter than me doing that work. Uh, but again, it, you know, there's, there's industry making progress there. We've got growers and grower associations making progress there. But that's something, I mean, this, this is, to your point, this is where it all comes from. We have to take care of the soil or it's not gonna be there in the future. Hi there. Douglas Mitchell. I waited till the end because I always like to see what's going on, particularly my friend uh, and colleague, Dr. Jericho, who is concerned about water. Uh, I'm a veterinarian, as he is, and uh, the whole animal question uh, and the future of animal production here is something else I'd like you to speculate on as what's going to happen because there's a lot of negativity about eating meat and so forth, as you well know. Um, one of the things, and you did allude to it, was safety concerns. And safety, and in the animal world particularly, it's, it's, it's been a big problem. As you know, uh, by careful planning, we eliminated brucellosis and TB but we're always subject to all kinds of other right. disease conditions. So I just wonder, uh, where are we going? And by the way, milk was never mentioned. Milk is another staple of our diet, and I think most of our milk that we drink is, is produced locally. And uh, so I'd just like you to speculate a little bit on the future of the animal portion of uh, of the, the whole food production system. Sure. 
Well, as I said, I, I don't think you're going to see a decline in animal production. I think arguably there's going to be more demand. There's more demand for all kinds of protein to feed a growing world. I think you'll see a shift in that less will be consumed domestically just based on consumer preference and consumer taste, but that doesn't mean less production. I think it probably means more. There are some examples, again, here in Lethbridge. Some of you may be familiar with a company called Epic, Egg Processing Innovations Cooperative. So it's primarily, I think it's 300 or so um, Hutterite colonies. All of their eggs are supplied to this particular plant and they break the eggs and separate both egg whites and egg yolks. They also do some whole egg product. And we're talking bulk totes of 1,000 liters, not the little cartons that you buy at the store, right? This is serious egg separation. But that product is sold to industry. So again, the opportunity in my mind, whether it's animal, whether it's plant, whether it's potatoes, whether it's pork, whether it's eggs, is that value-added component, right? That's where the city wins, and that's where we leverage our skills, that's where we create jobs, is creating those animal-based products that are gonna drive value for consumers. The big trend, of course, in consumer preference right now is convenience. Try and convince either of my children that they actually have to cook something that doesn't involve a microwave. This is a foreign concept. So if it doesn't come pre-packaged, pre-wrapped, and available in about 90 seconds, it's not food to them, right? But that, again, is the trend. So if we know that, and you've seen that in supermarkets, the chains like M&M Meats, they're taking standard meat products and they're now infused with flavors, or they're pre-wrapped, or they're pre-cooked. You can now get a partially cooked pot roast that's in a plastic bag, and the plastic bag can go in the oven. I still can't get my head wrapped around that. How does this not melt? And even if it doesn't melt, how is this good for me? You get the idea. So I think you know this, this, the secret sauce is going to be innovations that speak to those consumer trends, whether it's convenience foods, whether it's new flavor profiles. You know, the, the, the food business is a big business, and that's, that's really where the next stage is, is. How do you appeal to these consumers? Millennials, so my children, right? Millennials are the largest segment of the population now. They are the, li the largest component of the population. They're the largest demographic. They are driving the bus. What they want is what companies are starting to build and produce. So you're going to see a shift to, I think, even more convenient. I don't know how you make it more convenient than, like, inject it. But I think you're going to see that. And that's going to drive how food is produced and how it's packaged and how it's marketed. Trevor, can I ask you a question or two? Blue. Since there's nobody else. No, by all means. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the uh, canola, for example? Uh, I, as I understand it, the uh, canola oil is still being imported by China. So Richardson's are doing okay, yep. I think. Yep. But you can maybe talk. And the other thing I like to talk about is uh, greenhouses. Uh, the potential for local food is immense. Uh, supplying the local market in, in, in the wintertime in, in Alberta, mm -hmm. that has a huge uh, opportunity, I think, uh, going forward as well. Are you uh, uh, available to talk a little bit about that as well? Sure. Let me talk a little bit about canola, because obviously that's a, that's a pretty significant news story. So we have seen the price of canola drop 10.2% so far this year, based primarily on the fact that China has blocked a number of companies on the seed, the actual raw commodity itself. 
where we've seen the shift is that processed ingredients and processed foods, to your point, the oils, for the most part, are still being accepted. Um, you know, there's a variety of opinions out there, but the current trade situation with China, China specifically is almost 100% political. You know, it's not about our, the safety of our food supply, and most business people from China will admit that. Um, but that is, that is a reality. That's the politics of it. We have to work through that, right? So the opportunity for us, again, is to make sure we have incredibly high standards, that we continue to enforce those standards. We have to advocate at all levels of government with our partners. You know, when we have delegations from China, you know, there's some t we're sometimes given instructions about what we can talk about. I almost never follow those. Because the more we can get that message back to the people that are to making those decisions, the, you know, the better it is, right? Um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, although we've seen a, a, a clearly a, a drop in exports of canola, at the same time, China has increased the amount of wheat they take from us. So you know, in my mind, if your argument is, wait a second, your food system is not safe, we can't possibly take your canola, but hey, we really need to feed our people, we really need, we're just gonna buy some more wheat. You're undermining your own message. But I mean, that's, that's the reality of politics, right? Around your uh, second question, which was the greenhouse piece. So if you've driven from Lethbridge past Coaldale, you will have seen Greenleaf's facility on the highway there. It's a monstrously large greenhouse. It is not cannabis, it's lettuce, right? And they're shipping lettuce all over the world. Very premium types, varieties, very premium quality. So there is an opportunity for specialty crops in greenhouse. The challenge for us in Alberta in particular with greenhousing type operations is the cost of energy, right? So electrical energy off the grid, primarily because of transmission and distribution, not the energy cost itself, is disproportionately high for that industry. So it's very challenging to have a year-round greenhouse and successfully produce produce in the wintertime just because of the temperature differential. Where Medicine Hat, for example, you see lots of greenhouse operations because they produce a lot of their own energy. It's a very different, very different system. I think long term, if we can figure out using abandoned oil wells with geothermal, there's a pilot that's going on right now in Alberta with that. If you can marry some of those renewable technologies like solar and batteries, when batteries are of scale that they make sense economically, then all of a sudden greenhouse technologies quickly follow suit. We're just kind of in this spot right now where the cost of greenhousing for mass production at scale is very challenging. There's certainly opportunities for vertical farming, which is another version of sort of greenhousing. Um, the aquaponics program at the college plays around with that. And we, you know, we talked at the table about northern climates. There's parts of Canada that very rarely see sunshine. Vertical farms where you basically grow produce inside a sea container with lights. That makes sense for those locations, but it's very challenging to do that on any level of scale. So there's opportunities there. We've got examples right outside the city limits where there is, has been some success. But I think there's, you know, there, there needs to be a few other things that fall in place. And some of that is around energy cost and energy infrastructure. Just a little closing comment, Trevor. I appreciate you putting a photograph of ADRI, which a lot of people don't know about. And I want to point out, you point out the research station uh, was established in 1906. ADRI was established one year before that because of an outbreak of <laughs> a venereal disease of horses. 
which they needed to get some information, scientific handle on. So thank you very much for your Thank support. you. Uh, before we uh, wind up, unless there's any other questions, uh, I think we're going to wind up now. Uh, next week's topic is uh, how much does Lethbridge recycle and where does it all go? With uh, Joel Sanchez from the city is going to speak on that. And this weekend, there's a couple of real good opportunities for free events. One is at the university. They have the grand opening of the, of the science commons, they call it. Uh, lots, of, lots of good things happening there. And the college have a great event uh, Saturday afternoon called Cooley Fest, which is also free except in the beer garden. Uh, so I encourage you to go out and take those things in. It looks like the weather is going to be great and uh, lots of interesting stuff happening. With that, uh, thank you very much, Trevor.